Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. Philippians 2, 1-5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades. All right, thanks, Derek. Kiddos, uh, you, if you would like to go to Elevate, do we have EGC today? Yes? All right, and EGC. Uh, head out those back doors. Uh, this is a busy weekend there's a whole lot going on um certainly uh father's day which father's day and mother's day these are these are american-made holidays but certainly the importance uh, of a father um and the importance of a mother is critical it's uh and those can be tremendous blessings those can be tremendous wounds they can carry a lot of weight there but uh there are a number of men here who are fighting hard and fighting well to uh, love and steward that gift. Uh, and so um, we are grateful for you. Uh, and so men, as, as always, uh, men, you get a full-size candy bar, uh, 18 and over. Um, get a full-size, you get a, like, not like a Halloween-type candy bar, like a legit full-size candy bar. We'll have those for you on the way out. Uh, and yeah, uh, and then um, and then tomorrow is another important part of, of American history. A- apart from being my son's birthday, where did he go? Is he, yeah, he's in the back. Uh, and who, Boris Yeltsin, right? You share a birthday with Boris Yeltsin. Boris Johnson. Okay. So aside from those two birthdays tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, so tomorrow is also uh, Juneteenth, which I, I would encourage you to read up on. It's an important day in American history when the Emancipation Proclamation was finally delivered two and a half years after it, be, after it was written, finally delivered into the state of Texas, uh, where the final slaves were freed in 1865 on June the 19th. Uh, and so I would encourage you. That's an important date in American history that we have not honored well um, and, and are doing so now. Uh, tomorrow is Juneteenth. So, uh, and then with that, uh, this morning we're starting a new sermon series as we walk through some of the one anotherings of one another. Um, I have, uh, let's see here, uh, three times in my life I have started the Brothers Karamazov and gotten halfway through. Um, and the last time I attempted to do this uh, in April, I started in April, it was like a year and a half ago. Uh, yeah, and I got halfway through, and by November, 
I was still halfway through uh, the Brothers Karamazov. It is a long book, very small words, lots of different translations. So I uh, cheated a little bit and got it on Audible and at 1.3 speed listened to 37 hours and three minutes of Russian literature to finish the Brothers K. Uh, on walks, doing yard work, all that kind of stuff. So I made sure um, that I did it. And there were parts, uh, as I was listening to it, there's parts that I'm reading that I'm just like, this is riveting. And I would forget what I was doing and being like sucked into the story and what was happening there. And then there are other parts, a lot of other parts, that I would totally be sucked into what I was doing and have no idea what was and I'm like, is this conversation still happening? Um, the Brothers Karamazov, so it's getting some airtime, is what I'm telling you. All right, so, so buckle up. The Brothers Karamazov, it is, it is the story of, I, there's three brothers. There's, there's, there's two brothers and then an older stepbrother and then a younger half-brother that has an interesting backstory uh, to him as well. But it's the story of... Um, three brothers. It's, it's the story of Dost, uh, that uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote. And what most people think is that it's not, there's no plot. I mean, there is a plot, but it's loosely there to hold the story together. But it's really about these three characters, predominantly. And most people think that Dostoevsky kind of wrote this as the projection of himself in three different characters. The oldest brother is Dimitri. Dimitri is the sensualist. He is given to the pleasures of this world, food and drink and women and the, and the night life. Uh, and this is probably the most accurate representation of who Dostoevsky really was. He was a follower of Jesus. He clings heavy to the doctrines of grace and the need for grace. And as you see throughout this, this story in particular, I think it's because he saw how desperately he needed it. Um, but that's the oldest brother is Dimitri. And I think that, uh, that represents more, most accurately who Dostoevsky actually was. He was given to these same worldly pleasures. The youngest brother is Alyosha, also known as Alexei. Um, and he is, uh, he lives at the monastery, he is devout. He has a simple faith, but it's not, it's not simplistic. He, he allows himself, he's not like removed from the world and don't tell me anything bad. He's very aware of what's going on in the world. And his faith can be shaken, but it's, but it's never undone. And, and he's actually a pretty, like, he, will, he, will, he knows the arguments, but his faith is pretty rock solid. And most people think that this is who Dostoevsky wants to be. This is his ideal self, is this youngest brother, Alyosha. Uh, this is who he's chasing after. Uh, and then you have the middle brother, Ivan. Uh, and Ivan, in my opinion, I think Ivan is the tension between who Dostoevsky wants to be and who he actually is. He's the intellectual atheist, uh, and he gives some arguments against the existence of God that uh, are, they're from an insider position. You can tell. This is somebody who has thought this out. This is somebody who is angry at God saying, I don't believe in you, and I'm very mad at you. Um, and what you'll find, that this, and this is not necessarily a spoiler alert, this is because the plot is not important, but what you do end up seeing is that Ivan, though he makes some brilliant arguments uh, against 
justice and against God's existence and all of this stuff, what you find out at the end is he can't live under the weight of his own belief or his own unbelief. Um, and so that's Yvonne. There's a big section of the book called The Grand Inquisitor. And the Grand Inquisitor is, the sto- is, is basically this part of the, of the book where Alyosha and Yvonne meet up in a bar or a restaurant. And they're not tremendously close. These are the youngest two brothers that both have the same mother. And they're not tremendously close and Yvonne is getting ready to leave. And Yvonne has a deep admiration for Alyosha. He loves his little brother deeply. He respects his conviction. He respects his faith. Uh, but um, he does not believe it at all. And he brings this full accusation uh, against God. Now, one of the things that, um, that I was uh, confronted with by a, by a member of Refuge uh, is when she said, I've, I've heard of a lot of pastors quoting Brothers Karamazov, especially this section. This is the most often quoted section. Uh, I've heard a lot of pastors quote it, but I don't know any of them have actually read it. So, 37 hours and three minutes. I finished it. I listened, it, I, but I finished. Uh, so, I get to quote it. Um, but they meet up, and they're, they're having this, this long conversation about faith. And Ivan is bringing accusation after accusation after accusation. And Alyosha's response, he actually grieves with his brother. He enters into it, and yet his faith is secure. It's actually beautiful. But the, the conversation turns uh, to the evils of men, and it's redirected to Christ's teaching on love your neighbor. And this is Ivan talking. He says, I must make one confession. I can never understand how one can love one's neighbors. It's just one's neighbors, to my mind, that one can't love. Though one might love those at a distance. I once read somewhere of John the Merciful, a saint, that when a hungry, frozen beggar came to him, he took him into his bed, held him in his arms, and began breathing into his mouth, which was putrid and loathsome from some awful disease. I am convinced that he did that from self-laceration, for the sake of charity imposed by duty some kind of penance laid on him. For anyone to love a man, he must be hidden. For as soon as he shows his face, love is gone. And Alyosha responded, and he said, Father Zosima, which we'll talk about at the end, has talked of that more than once. He too said that the face of a man often hinders many people not practiced in love from loving them. But yet there's a great deal of love in mankind, an almost Christ-like love. I know that myself, Ivan. Uh, Ivan. Well, I know nothing of it so far. and can't understand it. And the innumerable mass of mankind are with me there. The question is whether that's due to man's bad qualities or whether it's inerrant in their nature. To my thinking, Christ-like love for men is a miracle impossible on earth. He was God. Talking of Jesus. We're not gods. And he goes on. Beggars especially. Genteel beggars ought never to show themselves, but to ask for charity through the newspapers. One can love one's neighbors in the abstract, at a distance, but at close quarters, it's almost impossible. If it were as on the stage in the ballet, where if beggars come in and they're wearing silken rags and tattered lace and beg for alms dancing gracefully, then one might, be, one might uh, like looking at them. But even then, we should not love them. We're going to 
start this sermon series on, on the communal practices, the communal disciplines. We've talked about spiritual disciplines here. We, in, the, in the winter, uh, at the beginning of the year, we talk about the personal dis- disciplines, prayer, meditation, fasting, and study. And then uh, we also talk about the disciplines of mission and how do we practice mission. And the way we talk about there at Refuge, it's not simply evangelism. It's not like a pickup line for Jesus. Mission is so much more robust than that. It is the gathering of corporate worship. It is public discussion on faith and having good discussions of faith. Uh, It is incorporating our work in faith and why what we do is proclaiming the goodness of God. Uh, It is hospitality and hosting the stranger. And it's also uh, ministries of mercy, compassion, and justice. And there are a lot of things that are written about those two areas of spiritual practices. There's a lot written about our relationship with God and how do we grow that. And there's a lot written about how do we proclaim the gospel through word and deed with the people around us. There's lots of Bible studies and lots of materials written on those things. But there doesn't seem to be much out there on like how do we love each other. And maybe it's reflecting in the church today. How do we love one another? How do we love our neighbor when loving our neighbor actually comes to loving other followers of Jesus? And what Yvonne would call that is that is the greatest impossibility of all. How do you love people at a close distance? Uh, Last week we wrapped up Matthew chapter 5 with the Sermon on the Mount on how do we love our enemies. And the command and call of Jesus that perhaps distinguishes uh, Christianity most from anywhere else is the command to love our enemies. And that's hard, right? Does everybody agree that's hard? Okay. Tonight, uh, today, it's to love one another, and maybe that's just as hard. Um, maybe the key word here is love, and anytime we actually attempt to love, it's a hard thing to do. And so we're going to look at these communal disciplines, or the other word that we give for that is, uh, or the, the phrase is, one anothering, one another. The New Testament is filled with commands on how we are to be to and toward fellow followers of Jesus. There's a lot there. And they're all given under the umbrella of this command to love one another that's mentioned over 17 times in the New Testament. And that's a lot. And it's given by all the authors. Jesus tells his disciples, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Paul in Romans says, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. In Romans 13, Paul says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves, uh, who loves another has fulfilled the law. Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. That's heavy. And then John writes in 1 John, beloved, let us love one another, for, for love is from God. And, whatever, uh, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And again in John, uh, 1 John, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Every New Testament author talks about the importance of loving one another. And in John 13, Jesus says to his disciples, they're having the Seder meal, the Passover meal, Uh, He dips the morsel and gives it to Judas uh, to go and betray him. And Judas takes off. And then Jesus gathers his disciples 
And he says to them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus gives this direct command to his disciples to love one another. And, and how are they able to do that? Is it just a command? Is it just an ideal? Is it just a hashtag? How does that work? They can and are enabled to love one another because Christ has loved them. To love as Jesus has loved me. Um, a lot of you are going through the reading plan, right? Uh, Laura, got it. we're all chasing waterfalls uh, uh, with, with TLC. Um, and it's been fantastic. I've loved, been, I've loved following the comments. And if you are not doing that, uh, to get on version, download that app and read along and, and um, add your voice and your reflection, your, your God, what is it? God moment, God shot, God shot. Add your God shot. Um, and, and what's standing out. And one of the things that you'll see throughout these readings, especially as we're reading the gospel accounts, is how Jesus loved, how he loved his disciples, how he taught them, how he walked with them, how he was patient with them when they were dumb. And they were dumb often. And if you ever need encouragement to me, like, man, I'm failing at this Christian life thing, read the stories of the disciples. And you're like, oh, okay. Okay, I'm in pretty good shape. Uh, right there with them, right? You see, God, Jesus corrects them. He rebukes them at times. Um, but he loves them. And then what we haven't gotten to yet in the reading plan is that he is going to give his life for them. And they are going to abandon him and run away in his deepest moment of need because Jesus is the only one that can bear the weight of our sin and rebellion. And then when he comes back into the resurrection, he doesn't shame them, he restores them. He reconciles to, uh, with them. But, as Yvonne would tell us, okay, sure, but like, he's God. He's the Messiah. We're not. How are we supposed to do that? Paul in Philippians chapter 2 that we read, I think he gives us some helpful insight on what does it look to encounter Jesus, to be loved by him, and then turn and love one another. And so he says this, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The letter to the church of Philippi is by and large a letter of encouragement. Paul is actually really happy with how things are going in Philippi. And if you remember, several weeks ago we talked about all of these letters to the churches are basically Jesus ushers in this kingdom and all the letters to the churches are how do we do this? How do we live out the teaching of Jesus given his death, burial, and resurrection? And, and, and what's the primary teaching of Jesus? Right. Sermon on the Mount. You guys all nailed it. Primary teaching of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. So Paul, what he's writing all these letters to tell us to do and how this one another works is this is how you live out the reality of the Sermon on the Mount. This new kingdom ushered in by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So how do we do this? 
Well, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, I've been reading this speech over and over and over again for a while now. Um, David Foster Wallace gave a speech to the graduating class of Kenyon College, um, and he suggests in this speech what our natural mind is, what our mind outside of Christ is, our default mode, if you will. Of course, he doesn't put it like that. But he's talking about the things that he presumes to be true that are absolutely not true. And he says this, here's one example of the total wrongness of something that I tend to be automatically certain of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports the deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realist, most vivid and important person in existence. Now, we rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, hardwired into our brains at birth. Think about it. There is no experience that you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you or to the left or right of you. It's on your TV or your monitor or update on your phone. And so on. Others' people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow. But you are, but your own are so immediate and so urgent and so real. To, to put our faith in Christ This is what is so offensive about the gospel. Not religion for good people, but this is what's so offensive about the gospel. To put your faith in Christ, we have to acknowledge the reality that we are not, in fact, the center of the universe. And to a a postmodern Western mind, that's hard to do. That Jesus is, in fact, the center of all things. And what Paul reminds us here, it is so easy for us to, even in loving other people, for us to really kind of be more about our kingdom. More so than it is to be about God's kingdom. We want other people, we want them to be what we want them to be. We need them to fulfill certain roles. We want to help them be fixed so that they don't need us anymore. We want to focus on their issues and ignore ours. We want something to be outraged about rather than dealing with our own stuff. We need people to be something for us that they're not being. And there are like literally billions of ways that we can love other people but really be mostly about ourselves. And then Paul says, being aware of that, He says this, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's going to tell us uh, that to love another person as Christ has loved us is that we can't be primarily about our own agenda. Right? God loves you and I have a plan for your life. Or we can't be about what is just good for me, that we have to be what is good for us to gain perspective about each other's lives the hurts that we've been through, the challenges, uh, the things that we are avoiding. What does a win look like for you? Rather than just seeing you the way I need you to be. 
in having you fulfill that role. We have to step into other people's shoes. But here again, this is not about self-neglect. All right, this is, a, this is an important part, I think. We also need to look to the interests of others, not just our own, but also to the interests of others, not to the exclusion of our own selves, but to, to help us love them better. And this mind, what Paul says, this mind is ours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes into this early church creed. We didn't read it this morning. Who, though he was, in, though he was God, considered equality with God not a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Um, I had a, a mentor one time give me a perspective on this that I thought was really helpful. He said that Jesus was not selfless. A lot of times we think to love others, we have to be selfless. Don't think about anything for yourself. You, you need to be selfless and give everything you have. Um, even in this, even in this uh, creed, this early creed, we see that Jesus forfeits his divine rights, but Jesus is constantly filled with the presence of his Father. We see it all throughout the Gospels, Jesus being a way to be filled and be in the presence of his Father. Um, so uh, this mentor of mine said this. He said, Jesus was not selfless. He was a whole self. And he gave out of the overflow, out of the abundance of his relationship with his Father. There's a lot of talk about self-care. Has anybody not heard about, uh, like, self-care somewhere, right? Um, I think self-care is critical. I think it's very important, but I also think we have to understand what it actually is and what it's not. It is not treat yourself, all right? Self-care is not self-indulgence. Self-care is to have time to be filled, to realize you are not the Savior, you need the Savior. You are not Jesus, you need Jesus. And it's taking time to be filled, to be filled with the mind of Christ. So let me try to give an understanding of this uh, in a different way by asking a different question. We tend to ask, shoot, I tend to ask, right? I look at the world and I'm like, man, what would the world be like if the church would be the church and the people of God would be the people of God? Can you imagine what the world would look like? Anybody ever like... Mass confession, good for the souls. Anybody like even thought that? There's a lot of presumption in that. There's a, there's a whole lot of presumption, presumption about how good I'm doing and, and how bad everybody else is doing and what the church is supposed to be. But what if we ask this question instead? What would others start to look like if I began to love them in the way that Christ has loved me? What would you people look like if I began to show the grace and mercy that Christ has shown me? What would my perspective of them be? Instead of asking about what it would look like if everybody else started doing these things, if we started asking what would everyone else look like if I started doing these things? What if I shifted my expectations from what I wanted everybody else to do to who I am because of what Christ has already done? Would I see people that I, that I need to use to make myself feel better or useful? Or would I see people 
as a people to be loved as I have been loved. And what's beautiful about this is what the gospel does is it actually sets us free to love others without expectation of them having to fulfill that role in us. They don't fill some void in our life. We can love people because we have been loved. And this is hard, but to know and experience the depth of love of Jesus more and more is to be able to love others, not by getting them to the point where we need them to be. In fact, oftentimes, it, it, like, I don't know how many times I've said, well, I did love them and it didn't work. And that's not at all a condemnation on me. That's on them, right? That's sarcasm. That was sarcasm. We can say hard things. We can be gentle. We can be gracious. We can hear hard things. But we don't need to love other people in the ideal. Bonhoeffer said the fastest way to destroy our, uh, uh, the, well, let me read exactly what he said. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Now, um, this is not easy. It's not easy. It's not easy to even remember and practice that we are loved by God. I mean, Wallace says it perfectly. What's hardwired into our brain, what our default is, is that the world revolves around me. All of time and history has been created to give us me. I'm the culmination of all of that. That's what we're fed and taught. Um, and even with God. I mean, I don't know, there's, there's been a lot of talk lately about some Christian music and some music that's been playing in churches. If you look at the top songs played in every church, not every church, in a lot of churches these days, especially like mega churches, they are all almost exclusively about what God will do for me. It's hard to remember that we are not the point. And it takes practice, and it takes remembering, and it takes being filled. And so we talk about spiritual practices. We talk about spiritual practices, personal, communal, and missional. Um, and these are all working together. They are all at work in us. Uh, and, and it can be dangerous when we focus on one to the neglect of the other. When we just focus on relationship with God to the neglect of relating with other people. Or we are all about the relationship with other people in this world and we are not at all about our relationship with Jesus. And I mean, you can break the world, break the denominations in half by those focuses. Um, but what this is, is this is being transformed in our relationship with God and with other people. That's the fullness. And so this summer, we're going to go through these one another's. We're going to break them down into six categories that go throughout the Old Testament. Greet one another. Like how, what are our idioms that we have? What's up? Fine. Right? We don't even, we don't even care what the answer is. How do we greet one another? How do we encourage one another? What do we encourage each other with? What is the hope that we encourage one another with? Bearing with one another. Life in the in-between. Live in harmony with one another. What does it mean that those people are different from me and how do I have to love them even still? Teach and admonish one another and then finally serve one another. How does the love of Jesus and the hope of 
his life, death, and resurrection, um, and the ways that Jesus has loved us, how does that work itself out in even the most basic aspects of life? How do we practice this new kingdom? How do we practice Christ's love for one another? All of these being held under this one grand new commandment, directly from Jesus to his disciples, to love one another. So, we're going to practice this. You don't show up on the first day of work and have this down. All right? This takes practice. And, um, and we're going to spend time practicing it this summer. Uh, and uh, I don't know about you, but I have found this to be very true. Lo- loving other people can be really hard. It can be really hard. Um, it can be painful. In fact, I can almost guarantee that it will be painful at some level. You will be disappointed. It will produce some measure of hurt because we are broken. C.S. Lewis' famous quote in Four Loves, he says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies, little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. In fact, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. We get marketed to like crazy about like the best life is the easiest life. I, uh, I fell asleep watching a movie last night with my son on the couch and woke up this morning to the most tempting, uh, seductive images you could possibly think of. Couples were looking for houses, getting out of the rat race and going and buying a house on a beach somewhere. And I was like, that's what I need. That's what I need. I don't, I don't need Jesus. I need an island. Okay, but right? Yeah. Um, and yet, we see in Scripture, loving others indicates that we've been born of God. It affirms in our soul that God exists, that he abides in us when we do this. So I'm going to land the plane here with a little more Brothers Karamazov. Keep in mind, 37 hours and three minutes. I've earned at least two quotes. This one is uh, Father Zosima, who is, um, he is one of the older monks. He's very well loved and widely respected, and and not without his, his detractors, but but generally um, loved and, and uh, respected. And people would come to him for prayer. People would come to him for his wisdom. People would come to him for healing. Uh, and, and he just had just this amazing, remarkable wisdom that he would, that he would give to people. Um, and so this woman who was very, very direct, uh, coming to, to uh, Father uh, Zosima 
And she just said very, very directly how much she struggled with loving other people. She can do it for show. She can do it with the picture on Facebook. She can do it with the hashtag. And she can do it when it's important and show how much you love people and how much other people don't. But like to actually love somebody was really hard. And she wondered even if God existed. And if he did, how could he possibly care about her? Because he, she found it so hard to love anybody else but her. And so he replied by telling the story of a man who was older and reflecting on his life. And this is, I think this is hilarious. This man loved mankind in general, but he hated people specifically. <laughs> and he says this, and here again, don't be crushed by shame here. We're all in this together. This is what he quotes the man. He says, in 24 hours, I can begin to hate even the best of men. One, because he takes too long eating dinner. And another, because he has a cold and he keeps blowing his nose. Oh, I was just glad to hear no amens. I become the enemy of people the moment they touch me, he said. On the other hand, it has always happened that the more I hate people individually, the more ardent becomes my love of humanity as a whole. And again, this makes us reflect back on Yvonne's statement earlier. It's precisely our neighbors that we can't love because they're so close to us. We actually see them. But then Father Zosima finishes with these words to this woman in comforting her. He says this, I'm sorry that I can't say anything more comforting. Active love is a harsh and fearful thing compared with love in dreams. Love in dreams thirsts for immediate action. Quickly performed, everyone watching, and indeed it will go as far as even giving one's own life, provided it doesn't take too long, but is soon over and is on the stage. And everyone is looking on and praising. Whereas active love is labor and perseverance. And for some people, perhaps a whole science. But I predict that even that very moment when you see with horror that despite all your efforts, you not only have not come nearer to your goal, but seem to have gotten even further from it, at that very moment, I predict this to you. You will suddenly reach your goal and will clearly behold over you the wonder-working power of the Lord, who all the while has been loving you and all the while has been mysteriously guiding you. Love one another. This is the will of God. This mind and heart is ours in Christ. This is how the world knows that we are disciples of Jesus and not simply influencers. This is where the joy is. This is how God has loved us. Steadfast, long-suffering, and when we love in that same way, we feel and know his presence. So, um, every week on the app over the summer, there's going to be a worksheet, a practicum, a, uh, a lesson, a guide uh, for each one of these one another's. 
And um, if your GC is meeting regularly, I would encourage you to print that off and go through it and talk through these things and what does it look like in this particular area of one anothering. Um, but even individually or with a few other people, I want you to open it up. I want you to read through the passages. I want you to read through these commands in the New Testament. And I want you to start asking this question over the summer. What will other people start to look like if I loved them in the way that Christ has loved me? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you have loved us. Uh, and it's easy, sometimes it's easy for me to presume that I'm, I can be pretty easy to love. And then sometimes I get it uh, on just how difficult it must be to love me. And yet, um, if you love Peter, I think you can love me. Your love is steadfast and strong. It's not rainbows and unicorns. It's hard. And yet you continue and you're faithful in loving us. And we confess, we are not you. We are not the Messiah. We are not the Savior. And let us keep that in mind. But when we are filled with you, the way that you work that out in us is by the gift of us being able to love and bear with and encourage and greet and welcome and teach and admonish and serve one another. So I pray that we would practice that, that we would endure, that we would be long-suffering in our attempts to love one another, not to our own neglect, but because we are being filled with you, by you, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.